All right, Judges chapter 3. Now, Father, as we kind of switch gears here, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would, would help us to do that. Quiet our hearts and open our minds the way only the Spirit of God can. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's refresh for context. Things are bad in Israel. Look at verse 1. Here we go. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this, by the way, only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, the Canaanite uh, Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their wicked, wicked gods. All right, Roman numeral number one, chosen but compromised, or you could put saved but miserable, or you could put going to heaven but kicking and dragging my heels all the way, because it is a theological possibility for you to be saved and not be very blessed, just look around at the church, the big church, capital C, universal, to find somebody who is a professed Christian who isn't having a very good time, and it's mostly because of incomplete obedience. And so here the intro now at verse 6, the introduction to the book of Judges is officially over. So from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 6, is an introduction that sets you up for the 400-year period called uh, the, through the judges. Uh, there will be 15 judges, and it is called Israel's dark history, as we've been talking about in this introduction. You may have been asking, where are the judges? And the first three will appear tonight. We'll take a look at those three. Um, now, through the introduction, we have learned what we see here once again. The foundation for this crisis Christianity, I'm labeling for us, uh, where the sin cycle happens in that they rebel and disobey. Uh, they worship other gods. God raises up a paddling device known as their enemy, one of these pagan people groups, to come in and to prevail upon them. And then they suffer and they cry out and then they sort of repent and then God raises up a deliverer. And then the cycle goes on and on for 400 years. And so we're going to read about that. You know, God's done his part here but they will not do theirs. And that is a lethal mistake in Christianity, that God does everything. He does not. We have a part. Paul says that we work out, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
The caveat, of course, is that we cannot even do that without God's help. And so, yes, of course, God really indirectly will be getting all the glory for anything that happens because apart from him, we can do nothing. So that said, we still have something to do, and that is to cooperate with him. You have a will, and when your will lines up with his, you're blessed. Now, here in the promised land, you know, it's supposed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. They're in the land. The 12 states or tribes have been divided up. They're supposed to be uh, enjoying this land of milk and honey. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus, Jesus, or the Lord, was speaking to Israel saying, I've come down to rescue you from the hand of the Egyptians to bring you up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. How does the Lord describe it? Someplace you're really going to enjoy everything you need, milk and honey, the sweetness. It's going to be a really great place. Jesus says in John 10 and verse 10, I've come to give you life, not just mere existence, but this rich and profound, meaningful, blessed life. And, the, and here in the promised land, the Canaanites' power has been broken. Their back has been broken like Satan's power has been broken over our lives. But there remains these pagan pocket resistors, these wicked influences among them, which he says you must work and strive with me to overcome them, to drive them out, not to negotiate with them, not to use them for your personal gain and live by grace and then allow these pagan Canaanites to rule your, your life, but to actually, when it comes to unredeemable evil threats, exterminate those Canaanites. And of course, they represent really our vices and our sinful nature that we've been talking about. In the same way, God commands us by the Holy Spirit to put to death pagan pockets of resistance in our own hearts and not to conform to the world, to come out and be separate, to fight against these spiritual temptations and evil. And so for various reasons, as we've seen and in these six verses uh, that show us that they opted for incomplete obedience, the enemy was too determined or, you know, they were too deeply rooted in the land or they had menacing iron chariots. You know what? It's a lot of reasons why they won't comply, not that they can't comply. There's always lots of reasons, but there's always one consequence to incomplete obedience, and that is misery. The Lord said, this is for your good. Do walk with me so that it doesn't really become thorns in your eyes or thorns in your side or a whip on your back or a snare, a trap to your feet. He's saying, watch out for that. Watch out for these little things you tolerate in your life, these pagan pockets of resistors. And so instead of driving them out, we see before we now move on, that they're t instead of driving them out, they're taking them to the altar, the, the marriage altar, and they're marrying them and worshiping the, these gods. And these gods were basically about money and sex. And so not only did they make their own lives miserable, 
Not only did they incite the, the disciplinary action of the Lord against them in a redeeming way to turn their hearts, but they were really jeopardizing the salvation of the world. God had promised to bring the Savior of mankind through Jewish lineage, and they were marrying into uh, uh, pagan people groups that God had determined to do away with and judge. And instead of judging them and exterminating them and driving them out, they were marrying them, thereby, humanly speaking, jeopardizing Jesus uh, being uh, revealed to the world. So they're, they're in a lot of trouble here. And so the very thing they allow is the very thing that becomes their demise. I read a uh, little article about a prison that processed 55-gallon drums of grease and for various uh, companies that use that. And uh, they shipped them out and a company that received a barrel opened it up and there was no grease in there but a dead inmate who is thinking, here's my path to freedom. And he climbed in and in a spiritual application, the path to freedom that sinful men choose often is the path to their own demise. He thought he was getting out of jail but he was really making things a lot worse. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So let's take a look now with the foundation laid to judge number one, who must come down to the Israelites' rescue. All right, Othniel, verse seven. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals, and the Asherahs, the anger of the Lord, burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, you see the pattern here, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rehathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. All right, so judge number one. With every judge, there will come a spiritual application, I believe, that the Holy Spirit is giving us to help us. Number one, then, will be the power of the Holy Spirit, Judge Othniel. Now, if you're interested in a recipe on how to displease the Lord and make him mad, there are a couple steps here that are really easy to follow, unfortunately. Um, Step one, forget God. The verse says here that they forgot the Lord, their God. Um, you know what, folks? Uh, forget your car keys, forget your sunglasses, forget your wallet, forget your cell phone, but please do not forget the Lord. That's a big mistake. Um, 
it always reminds me of Mary and Joseph who did misplace the Messiah back in Luke chapter two. But you know, theirs was like, well, they did. They're, they left town without him. And then Mary said to Joseph, where is Jesus? And he said, you're kidding, come on, he's with you guys, right? And then she says, no, you're kidding. And they go back and forth and they realize we've misplaced the Son of God. <laughs> yeah, we're in a little bit of trouble here. But theirs was a whoops, forget. But this kind of forget is not like that. And this kind of forget is a willful neglect of a present obligation, an intentional pushing of God aside from our thoughts for a greater priority of self-gratification. Sort of like the unfaithful husband who said, you know what, I wasn't thinking, I forgot. You know, I forgot my vows. I disregarded my first obligation to my wife to serve a different object, the goddess Asherah, the same goddess from 3,000 years ago, the goddess of sex. The same thing the Canaanites were all about was sex. 3,000 years, they're still the same goddess. And guys still bow, and gals bow at that altar because they forget God. So memory boosters, of course, would be corporate worship on a consistent basis, Christian service, private devotion, the word of God, and prayer. Step two to motivate God to paddle is you know, remove all the vestiges of our relationship with God, get it out of sight so that we can bow down to our passions, uh, we conform to the philosophies of this world, and we're really helpless before our spiritual enemies. And so when we forget God, we do so uh, for a reason. When the Bible goes away, recreation replaces worship services, the Lord's day becomes our day, the music goes secular, K-love becomes cheesy, uh, the friends become godless, the self-directed and induced uh, spiritual amnesia happens. And it's really uh, born out of the forgetfulness of God is born out of the flesh's deceit. So the sinful nature really doesn't want to serve God and so it wants to forget God and so it knows it can't really get what it wants when you're always reminded every day you've read the proverb of the day you've had worship music on you've got a Christian friend calling you've got a Christian obligation to serve that night and all of this makes it very very hard for you to forget your primary obligation to God so once the deck is cleared now we can serve because now we've forgotten, really, because it's not right out in front of me. And so God's displeasure, hot anger, your text says in the Hebrew, he gets angry red under the old covenant, under the new covenant, because of the mitigating blood of Jesus that assuages God's fierce wrath assuage is to absorb or to make softer because Jesus is the lightning rod for the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He absorbed the wrath of God for us. So it's more under our covenant, it would be uh, more theologically correct to say when I sin and rebel, and we do, 
God is displeased, God is disappointed, the Holy Spirit is grieved or quenched. Those are our better terms. The wrath of God, God will never judge me in wrath because that would be double jeopardy. Somebody already paid for the wrath to me. And that ought not to entice me to take advantage of uh, God's goodness because God's discipline <laughs> is just as painful, uh, I would suspect, than anything else. And so we have to be careful with that. But I will never, ever face God's anger, ever. Neither will you. We will be evaluated by a father. We will not experience the hot, burning wrath of God. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, not on us. They're not under the new covenant. There's no blood mitigation there. There's no peace. So moving on, verse 8 says, He sells them like slaves to new masters temporarily. So the sin that controls you is your master and you its slave. Romans 6, verse 16. And so he says to them, Okay, you want to serve Baal? the money God, you want to serve Ashtoreth, the sex God, and so I'm going to let you do that. I'm going to sell you over. The Romans chapter 1 idea is still in play there, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. See, nothing has changed in the thousand years from uh, this point to the time Romans was written. And therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. The same idea right here in your text that God sold them. This is the idea. It's like, okay, you want to worship the goddess of sex, uh, go ahead. I'm going to let that happen. I'm going to kind of enhance the situation to let you reap the consequences in a redemptive way so that you would come back. And so, therefore, God gives them over to their sinful desires to... Uh, uh, of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. So he says, okay, here you go. There you go. When you get your STD, call me. I'll be here. But it looks like you're going to need that. When you get your girl pregnant and then she aborts your son or your daughter, give me a call. And they, this is exactly the sin cycle, right? So when you get caught and when you're going to pay a fine or when your target, target code, when your car gets towed, means, you are all like, what did that mean? Well, whatever it meant, you didn't want to do it, I know, but... When your car gets towed, or you gotta pay the fine, or you gotta go to jail, give me a call from the jail. I'll send a chaplain there, there'll be a Bible there, 
be good to go. This goes on every day, right out of 3,500 years ago scriptures. He works the same way with his people, saying, you want this, God? I'm going to give you this, God. When you get the experience of the perks and the benefits of serving this new master of yours, give me a call. You got my phone number, Jeremiah 33.3. Call unto me, and I will answer you. That's my phone number. Hold on. Whatever. All right, moving on. So you got to know this, who this bad boy king is that God raises up. His name, unfortunately, is, appears four times in the Hebrew. The, the NIV editors thought that was a little much, and so t two of those times changed the pro to the pronoun, pronoun thank you, <sighs> cleansing breath, <laughs> changed the pronoun to him instead of the name, but the Holy Spirit mentions his name four times to make a point, and here's the point. Here's what his name means. This is the king that God says, okay, you want to serve this? Here's my paddle. Here's my spank spank boy, all right? His name is, his name means double darkness. That's his name. Now, his mama didn't name him that, probably, but he's been, he's come to be known by this name of double darkness. Darkness. He's one bad dude. And how long do they wait before they cry out? Eight years. Because they're thinking, well, I know it's bad, but maybe it'll get better next time. And let me keep sinning this way. And maybe we could just hold on and maybe it'll just change and maybe I can still get away with it. Eight years. And then they cry out. And he answers them. And God raises up Othniel, this is Caleb's son-in-law, uh, against Mr. Double Darkness. And here's the key lesson from Judges chapter 1. Underline this in your Bible. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. This is the answer to our big troubles. The spiritual application here is it's that double darkness. We've got worse than double darkness. We've got... <laughs> A roaring lion, the devil, who's seeking someone to devour. He's worse than double darkness. And the only way to defeat your spiritual enemy, double darkness, is to have the Spirit of the Lord come upon you. This is a huge New Testament concept, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, is the seed thought in Zechariah 4.6. And now you will only have a few individuals in the Old Testament who uh, the spirit of the Lord comes upon them. The New Testament, this is an experience that any believer can have, being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit for power to live right with God and to be useful to him. It's a great privilege, but only a few people, apparently because the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit is sort of tied to that act. And before Jesus did his work, it wasn't possible, really, for the general public to have the blessing of living after the sins of the world have been paid for and dealt with. And so let me just say this. By uh, word of the relationship of 
the Holy Spirit to us. There are three relationships a believer has with the Holy Spirit. John 14 and verse 15 says, if you love me, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, says, you will obey what I command. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, comforter, advocate, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. There's two of them right there. Number one, with you. It's the Greek word para, para, which just where we get the word parallel. He walks alongside of us. He protects us. He woos us. He's, he's with us always. He's Emmanuel. He's guiding us. He's convicting us. He's drawing us. Uh, second one, he will be in you. This is the great Christian mystery that the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, that Christ through the Holy Spirit is present in our very hearts. The Greek word is en, for where we get our word in. And so that's a relationship. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, this great mystery he says is revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19, do you not know? that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, you see. So two relationships so far with and in the third and final relationship all believers can have with the Holy Spirit, the Greek word P-E-P-I, and it means to come upon with power. So do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit, E-P-I, comes upon you in power. So in short, at conversion, the Holy Spirit who's been with us and now in us is fully given and fully received. Sometimes there's a subsequent filling of power, this third relationship that can come after conversion. And I have a proof text, this is my opinion, that sometimes when you, a person becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in and upon, and you are filled. And it's pretty obvious. There's just gifting, there's effectiveness, there's victory. That person is, pow, alive, filled to overflowing. And then there are other instances where a person is truly saved. You cannot be saved without the, the Holy Spirit coming inside of you. But there's a lacking of power. There is a trying and a striving in one's own power to live the Christian life. They are lacking that third relationship with the Holy Spirit. And, and it cannot be earned, but it can be asked for. Fill me with the Holy Spirit, and he will do that. It's all for the asking. It is so sad to see people live less than victorious lives. And it's because they are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and that third relationship, that fullness of power, 
You know, just so you, if you're asking, where do you find that in the Bible? In Acts chapter 8, there are two deacons who are uh, winning souls in Samaria, and they are being baptized in water. They are saved. And then the apostles in Jerusalem hear that two deacons are out doing this work, so they send an apostle. So Peter comes out and says, what's going on here? And they say, these guys just got saved and they got baptized. And he, and, and he says, let me pray that they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me, they wouldn't have baptized them if they were not truly saved. They've repented, they've confessed. There's a revival. They're in the water, they're coming up. And Peter says, oh, but there's a subsequent experience. So you alone know, really, are you filled with the Holy Spirit or not? Sometimes that evidences itself in the speaking of tongues and sometimes other gifts and sometimes not. But you know, if you're walking in victory, you have the peace of God. God is with you and you're not walking constantly in your own power and frustration. All right. We're only on judge number one. Are you serious? All right, judge number two is like the whole deal, and it's a fun one. A delightful children's bedtime story. <laughs> Not. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts. Verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave them a gift. Eglon, king of Moab, to power over them. Verse 13. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon, wicked Eglon, came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Yeah, 18 long years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, which is funny because Benjamite means son of my right hand, and he's a lefty. There's something going on there. The Israelites sent him with tribute, like tax money, to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Ehud was, had made, rather, a double-edged sword. You should underline that, and you should think of that, you Christian, what that could possibly stand for, a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. The Bible just says it how it is, and he was very fat. 18. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols um, near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet. And all the attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. And as the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. 
Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Hmm. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. Well, if you're visiting here tonight, <laughs> welcome. Verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. Like, you know what? It just says it the way it is. Verse 25, so they waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols again and escaped to another place. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord had given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 bad guys, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. So Judge Othniel, the first judge, the power of the Holy Spirit, this is the second judge. The lesson here is the power of the word of God. Now, 40 years have gone by. The next generation has grown fat and sassy. And the Lord now has to raise up King Eglon. It says a very fat man. His name, Eglon, means little calf. But in this case, it is the fattened calf. Never mind. The Lord uh, raised up this paddle, king of Moab, and he enlists the Amorites and the Malachites, and together they are, for 18 years, are going to stomp on Israel. Now, it took these Jewish dumbbells, 18, and as a Jew, I speak, Jewish dumbbells, 18 years of distress before they waved the white flag. You know what, folks? I, I make a lot of mistakes. I've been a Christian for 32 years. When you make a mistake and you feel the distress, the weight of your consequences, the guilt, the grievedness, and some other practical problems from your saying what you shouldn't have said or taking what you shouldn't have taken and smoked what you shouldn't have smoked, drank what you should, it goes on and on and on. How long does it take you to cry out to the Lord in repentance. From 32 years, I can tell you what, I still make mistakes, but from the, from the moment I sin to the moment I cry out, that time interval has sh shortened a lot. I don't go 18 seconds. I, I don't enjoy that feeling. I, I'll tell you what, I'll just open my heart here. I cannot get up and do what I do and feel like I've grieved the Holy Spirit. I can't do it. I'll have a mental breakdown. 
I cannot be standing talking to you with a Bible open and be telling you about and appearing to be somebody that I am not currently being. That is, for me, a recipe for a uh, mental breakdown. And, and so, please, how long are you going to go when the heaviness of the weight of the Holy Spirit is on you to try to get you to turn? I don't know. 18 years. Wow, that's a long time. You've got to say one thing about them. They're stubborn. <laughs> so Ehud's a lefty. You know, this is going to work for him because the Hebrew actually says he's not good with the right hand. There's something wrong with his right hand. And so he's a lefty because he's probably handicapped with the right hand. And so the Holy Spirit is trying to say he's a guy with weakness. But watch what God can do with him. He's sort of son of my strength from Benjamin, and he has a real weakness. Human weakness is perfect backdrop for God's power to manifest. When I am weak, then I'm really strong, says the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. Okay, so rescuer Judge Ehud has two problems. How am I going to get to this big boy and uh, do away with him? without making anybody suspicious. So what does he do? He says, I will lead the commission that brings the extortion money uh, that says, oh, we love you, King of Moab, for oppressing us. And we're going to actually pay you <laughs> to do that. And we bow the knee, and here's our treasure. Let me lead the way that'll get me right at his doorstep. And so he's carrying the treasury. And he brings it in. And he knows what he's getting ready to do. He's scoping out the place. And so he gets there in verse 17 and pays homage and says, you the man, here's the money. Now, uh, because of his handicap, he's really disarming, especially when there's cash in the good hand. Now, secondly, how to get a private audience. So they leave. Everybody says goodbye. Thank you for the thousands of dollars. And then he, he's walking, and your text says that he comes to the place of idols. And then he turns around. Something about seeing those idols and saying, here we go again. I'm going to go and do the job. So he turns around at the idols, and uh, he's going back there. He walks in, and he works on his ego and says, man, I've got a, I've got a word from the Jewish God for you. And he's flattered, and he says, everybody go away, because I want to hear this special message from God for me. Now, the spiritual application is beautiful here. A disabled, weak man makes a double-edged sword, and he's going to go against this fat, huge oppressor. The double-edged sword is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The fat man, listen, there's a picture. I found it. And in the Hebrew, it really translates what he actually looked like. It's Java the Hut. Now, that's another joke. You guys are rough tonight. Okay, listen, every time I read this story, I think of him, because it's saying the sinful nature, the flesh, 
never is satisfied. It's insatiable lust and appetite for more and more, more and more gossip, more and more highs, more and more lust. That's who he represents, Mr. Java the Hut sitting on top of your chest so you can't even breathe. You will feed me now. <laughs> I will keep you here forever until we break you down. And I will. Don't start me. So what does he do? He takes the word of God. That is your sinful nature. And he plunges the sword in because I'll tell you what, friends, the word of God is your weapon. It is the thing that plunges into that sinful nature that will not stop. It will grow and grow and grow. It is a beast. And he, the graphic picture is on purpose to make it more of a beast of a thing. The sword goes in, the fat closes up, and the NIV editors spare you in English of by sanitizing the verse. The verse in Hebrews, Hebrew says, and, and you can read it in the King James, and the dirt came out. The word for dirt is excrement. He was disemboweled. And this isn't an, a commentary. This is in the word of God. That's the comment. So it says, oh, spiritual application. The sword of the spirit goes into your wicked beast-like heart. That sinful nature. And what comes out? The dirt, the filth. This is what cleanses, what heals, what cuts and goes in. This is the answer. To memorize it, to hear it preached and taught. Even tonight, that Sword has gone in, and the fat has been covered, and the dirt has come out. Every single time you're in the Word of God, that thing that says, me first, you hurt my feelings. It's all about me. I'm going to get high, or I'm going to go get drunk, or I'm going to look at porn tonight. They're going to commit adultery. That is the beast. He says, the word of God, <laughs> done. The dirt comes out, boom, on the floor, like a big pile of butter. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> a big, I don't, never mind. Get rid of him. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Jesus, the Pharisees say, oh, you can't eat that. That'll make you unclean. And Jesus says, Bro, boys, it not what goes in that makes you unclean or filthy. It's what comes out of that mouth of yours. And here's what he says from the abundance of the heart. He says in Matthew 15, out of that heart, out of Java, comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. What can stop that? The word of God. Memorize it. Meditate on it. And even 
When you don't feel anything's happening, the Bible says, my word shall not return void. It will, I'm quoting from Isaiah, it will not return void. It will accomplish that which I sent it to do every day. Anytime somebody's going to preach from this book, who knows how to preach from it, who God sent to preach from it, avail yourself so you can get rid of the beast and have a happy life. So wonderful assurance there. So Ehud slips out the back, locks the door. The king's attendants are in a quandary. Maybe he's using the restroom. Who's going to? So they wait and they wait and they wait and they're like, until they're all beat faced red. And so somebody says, I'm going in. And they go in and they find the big fat guy dead. And so, and then once the big guy's dead, all the little guys scatter too. So he goes and he says, follow me, guys. You know why? Because I slayed the oppressor, the me monster. And people want to follow somebody who slayed the me monster. But there are not a lot of people who have. And you can tell in a heartbeat who's got a me monster who's still belching up commands and who's has been disemboweled for the most part. Men and women want to follow somebody whose me monster has been dealt a lethal blow. Those are the heroes. Those are who we follow. Are you one of those? You can be. There's one verse left. He's a one-verse judge. Let's just look at him. I mean, Judge Othniel, the power of the Holy Spirit. Judge Ehud, the power of the Word of God. And Judge Shamgar, the power of using what you got. All right? As a result of one verse, he's one of six minor judges, simply because of the brevity. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. That's it. That's all you're going to hear about him. Here's his lesson. Well, the Philistines are the bad boys, the specified bad boy paddling device. The farmer boy is Shamgar. He kills 600 warriors with an ox goad. An ox goad is an eight-foot-long goad. To On one side, it was poking the oxen to tell them, do work, son. And the other side of it was to clean the plow. And all he had, here's, here's what he didn't have. He didn't have a sword. He didn't have a shield. He didn't have armor. He didn't have an armor bearer. He didn't have military training. He didn't have an iron chariot. He didn't have a spear or a bow. He didn't have a lot of things. The lesson here is, son, what do you have and what needs to be done? And he says, you know what I got? I got an ox goat. And God says, thank you. I will save an entire nation by a simple farmer with an ox goat. That's what I like. That's all I need. It's not what you don't have, Christian. It's what you do have. Is what you do have consecrated fully to the Lord? That's the whole Bible. It's 
filled with that. Please stop with the, I don't have. I don't give because I don't make a lot. He didn't ask you what you don't make. He's asking, well, what do you make and what did you do with the little that you do make? Oh, well, I don't do this because I can't do that. Please, great men and women of God, just use what God has given them. 1 Samuel 17, Saul, King Saul, King, uh, not King Saul, Goliath. It's late, I'm wrapping up. Nine foot Goliath and King David slingshot. A slingshot, a shepherd boy, come on. Exodus 4, shepherd Moses and his staff. He says, "Uh, how can I prove that you sent me? He says, what do you have in your hand? There it is. I've got a staff. Throw it down. Let me show you what I can do with your staff. Turns into a snake. He says, watch this. You use that all through your ministry. I will empower a stick because you're saying, look, this is what I got. I'll use that thing that you have. Well, I don't have this. I don't care what you don't have. Two disciples test question Jesus to Philip. Philip, see all these people? I want to feed them. Where do you think we could get that from? P.S. I just did this a few chapters ago. And Philip says, I don't think eight months wages, we don't have. We don't have eight months wages. We would need that, and that's what we're missing. Andrew pipes up, but we do have a sack lunch, and this is Jesus. (laughs) We got a sack lunch. We got three little sardines, or how many they were, five little, little twisted dry fish, and we got a couple little barley loaves, and the Son of God. So Andrew wins because he's about what do I have and not who I'm not and what I don't make and what I don't have. Bible heroes, a little boy with a sack lunch, consecrated fully over. Here, Jesus, take this. What can you do with this? And he goes, a lot, (laughs) a lot. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these lessons, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Word of God, and the power of using what we have, what you have given us. We thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.